Live Truth, the study of Second Peter. We're going to wrap up our series today. And you know, I thought about, you know, what we should have done was anyone who's been here for all eight weeks of the study, we should let you raise your hand. And anybody been here for the last eight weeks in a row? Because I think we should give away the puppy. What, what do you think? You know, you know what I mean? So who wants the... I'm just kidding. I don't have the puppy anyway. But anyway, we should have done that. We should have auctioned off the puppy or given away the puppy. Okay. To whoever had perfect attendance, but anyway. Hey, welcome to Seacoast. My name is Pastor Dale. Open your Bible. Get to Second Peter. Second Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 10. We're going to kind of cruise right on through the end of this book. We've got a fun uh, Christmas series coming up, which I'll tell you more about next week. Uh, but we've got a fun Christmas series, Thanksgiving, to celebrate next week. And we hope you're here early and you come as our guest. So come back next week. Pray with me as you open the, open the word. Father, thank you for the scriptures. Wow, thank you for what it tells us about you. Thank you for the true knowledge of God and of Jesus. Thank you for the true knowledge of your grace that we've studied. Thank you, Father, for the fact that um, today you're going to unveil to us uh, our eternal destiny. So, Father, I pray that you uh, give me wisdom, uh, give us wisdom as we listen to your word. We pray that the Spirit of God would help us have understanding. It's kind of some heavy stuff that we'll tackle today. So thank you for your word. Thank you that um, you don't want us to live wondering what the future holds. So give us your insights from your word today. And then teach us how to live in light of that in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. When you hear the word heaven, what do you think about? The Barna Research Group recently uh, did a national survey of Americans in terms of how they think about eternity, heaven, hell, all those types of sub- subjects. Let me give you a few uh, insights because our culture, even those who are not involved in church, largely still agree that there must be some life after death. In fact, here are some stats. Surveying, again, a cross-section of American culture, 80% believe that we as people have an eternal soul that has some type of existence after death. 80%. 80% believe that there is an afterlife. 80% said, I believe that with certainty. Another 10% said, I think there may be life after death. So at least 90% of Americans believe that either there is life after death or else it's at least a possibility and, and they're interested in that. What's it going to be like? Well, 46% said life after death is simply being with God. And beyond that, they have no idea what it is beyond that. It's just being with God. 46%. Another 30% on top of that believe that, well, it's being with God, but it's some type of an actual place that you go to, a place of rest and reward. 64% when asked, well, do you expect you're going to be there or not? That's a good question, right? 64% of Americans say, I think I'm going to heaven. Another 25% said, I have no idea if I'm going to heaven or not. 
Very interesting statistic. They also uh, did some interviews about the topic of hell, and and we don't, I don't want to go into all those stats, but the most fascinating stat of this study, and it's done by a very reputable research group, the Barna Group. It's very much like the Gallup Group or others that do this type of polling. When they asked, do you think you're going to heaven, 64, you know, 46% said, um, I mean, 64% said yes. When you ask, do you think you're going to go to hell, what do you think the percentage was? Well, it's not zero, but it's pretty close. Yeah, it was about a half of 1%. Now, I'm not sure what's up with that, except it tells me Americans are very optimistic. (laughs) Probably a little self-centered. We have a very high view of ourselves. But, you know, as I try to figure that out, I kind of have to contrast that with Jesus. And I don't want to just say Jesus was a bearer of bad news because he's the author of the gospel or the good news, but Jesus also was honest with people. And Jesus said this one time when he was on earth. He said, you know, there is a, there is a way that seems broad and wide and its end is destruction. And then there's a way that's narrow and therein its end is life. But few there are who find it. Few there are who find it. But our culture seems to kind of flip that, doesn't it? That there's a way that's broad and has many ways, and the end therein is life. And according to Americans, 99.5% will find it. Jesus said it's not true. Today I want to look at this question of eternity. This question of heaven. I mean, is it really the ultimate blessing, or I went so far in the title to say, or is it kind of an eternal bore? I mean, is heaven going to be incredible or is it going to be incredibly the same forever and ever? What's up with heaven? That's the topic today. And how do we live in response to it? Now, you know, kids are often a little better than adults at answering these questions. So let me tell you what some kids answered when they were asked, so what's heaven going to be like? Danielle, age seven, said, I think heaven uh, will be the good thing about heaven is I'll have my own room and not have to share it with my brother. That's kind of a simple, low-level expectation, but unless you're used to sharing your bedroom with your brother, okay? Michael, age six, said, uh, my house is going to be made out of Reese's peanut butter cups and filled with chocolate. I could vote for that, amen? Yeah. Kristen, age 10, gets a little more graphic. She's a little older. She says, I think the streets are gold. I think the waters are crystal I think the houses are made of clouds. And in God's room, there's TVs everywhere so he can see what we're doing all day long. So, you know, it's kind of like God is the operating center. Okay. Jackie, age seven, said this. uh, Heaven is a real quiet, peaceful place where there are no bugs. Then she went on. No lie. She says, and the bugs have their own heaven, uh, not too far away where God spreads out a giant picnic just for them. My favorite, though, was Marie. Marie, age five, said this. She said, my grandma is baking pasta in heaven. And she's growing me some strawberries for when I get there. But I think she may have to put them in the refrigerator for a while because I'm not even six yet. (laughs) You know, it's interesting. You hear those kind of, uh, you know, kind of funny views, you might say. But, you know, that last view. My grandmother's making pasta in heaven and growing strawberries and, and uh, 
we're going to get together might be the closest to what we're going to learn today that your eternity may actually be like. Will there be strawberries in heaven? And I hope chocolate covered. Amen? <laughs> I want to combine. I've got to keep the chocolate in there. Heaven is something that every single culture, some type of life after death, seems to intuitively uh, believe in. Randy Alcorn, in his excellent book, Heaven, which I'm going to quote a bunch of times today, so I want to give him credit and recommend his book. It's a big, thick book, but it's a fun read, and it's probably the most thorough study done of not just heaven as we know it today, but our eternity. What will eternity be like? Highly recommend the book. He writes this. He says, the sense that we will live forever somewhere has shaped every civilization in human history. Australian Aborigines pictured heaven as a distant island beyond the horizon. The early Finns thought it was an island in the faraway east. Mexicans, Peruvians, and Polynesians believed that they went to the sun or the moon after death. Native Americans believed that, it, that in the afterlife their spirits would hunt the spirits of buffalo. The Gilgamesh epic of the ancient Babylonians um, refer to a resting place of heroes and hence of a tree of life. In the pyramids of Egypt, the embalmed bodies of the pharaohs had maps placed beside them as guides to the future world. The Romans believed that the righteous would picnic in the Aleutian fields while their horses grazed nearby. Seneca, the Roman philosopher, said this. He said, the day that thou fearest as the last is the birthday of eternity. Anthropological evidence suggests that every culture has a God-given innate sense of the eternal, that this world is not all there is. Jesus certainly affirmed that before he died on the cross. He said to his closest followers, remember this, John 14, 1, he says, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I'll come again and receive you unto myself that where I am there you may be also. Jesus said he was preparing a place for his followers. Today's passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 really is going to ask and answer, I think, two big ideas. Here they are. So you want to know where I'm headed, then we'll go there, and then we'll tell you where we went. How's that sound? Okay? Number one, where are we headed? The reality is today's passage first talks about bringing eternity into focus. What will our eternal destiny be like? Where is planet Earth and humanity headed? We want to bring eternity into focus. I call it future truth, bringing eternity into focus. And then, beginning in verse 14 especially, but sprinkled throughout, he then talks about so what? In other words, how do we bring our current life into, our, into focus? How do we better focus on how to live now in light of what we learn about eternity okay so first you got to get eternity in focus and understand what the truth is and then how do we live now focusing on that eternal aspect of our existence okay let's talk about eternity first and try to bring it into focus now i've given you an outline that sometimes you use it sometimes you don't but i'm guaranteeing you today uh, because i'm talking about eternity i mean i want to try to cover all the events that are going to lead up to the these 
thing called the end of time and then launching into eternity. So if I'm going to teach you all of the end time events and teach you all about eternity, I needed a big handout. All right. So what I did was I gave you a lot of the information so you don't have to write it down, but it will help you if you focus on it. Okay. The future truth bringing eternity into focus. Listen to the word of God beginning in verse 10. Second Peter. Chapter 3, verse 10. Here we go. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Uh, If you have the NIV, it's translated laid bare. I actually like that translation. The earth and its works will will be laid bare or burned up. It says this, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Looking for, now underline that word, because anytime a word is repeated three times in one short passage, it's important. And this one comes up three times, okay? Number one, we live looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. The day of the Lord and day of God, I believe, are synonymous. Because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, verse 13, we're looking for, there it is the second time, we're looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, verse 14, beloved, since you are looking for, there it is third time, you're anticipating, you're looking for these things, be diligently to be found in him, to be found in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord, that is, the fact that Christ hasn't come yet, the fact that we regard the patience of, his, of, our, of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother, the Apostle Paul. Let's pull up right there. We'll come back to that. Three quick facts that I want to unpack about where are we and civilization headed. Fact number one, history is on a countdown toward this thing called the day of the Lord. He calls it in verse 12, the day of God. What is he talking about? Whatever it is, he says it comes like a thief in the night, so it comes quickly. We learned that last week without warning, no two-minute countdown whenever this is going to happen. So he says it's like a thief in the night. All of a sudden you don't expect it. Boom. Once he comes, there's no turning back. So the day of the Lord is going to come like a thief in the night. And the day of the Lord will result in uh, the heavens and the earth being burned up and a whole new heaven, whole new earth being created. Now, if all that we had was this one verse, you would think that there's all of a sudden, bam, Christ comes, the day of the Lord happens, and the very first thing that happens is everything is destroyed and there's a new heaven and a new earth. But what I want to show you now is that this phrase, day of the Lord, is not just referring to one single moment or event, but a period of time. When you study this phrase in Scripture, it's, it's a phrase that... Uh, let, me, let, me, let me diagram it for you. I, I'm a picture kind of guy. So I've given you a little black box, you see that? In which you don't have to write any of this down, but maybe around it you may want to write down a few Scripture references to help you go back and study this. So what's the reality for your soul and your body? Number one, we are living 
after the event of the cross and the resurrection of Christ in this period of time referred to in Scripture as the church, where God is working primarily through this global movement of followers of Jesus called the church. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So we're in the midst of God working and building his kingdom through this thing called the church that you and I, if we've placed our faith in Christ, are a part of. The very next event that I see described in Scripture that will, that will launch us into this thing called the day of the Lord is something which theologians often call the rapture of the church. It's described, oh, excuse me, okay, let me, let, me, let, me, let me pause for a second. When you die today, thank you very much. When you die today, I got ahead of my diagram. Never get ahead of your diagram, number one rule. When you die today, your soul goes to heaven or hell based on whether or not you've placed your faith in Christ as your Savior. Very clearly taught. The Apostle Paul, for example, says, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. He says elsewhere, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So we know that when a person dies, our body remains on the earth and disintegrates. Our body is buried, but our soul, which never dies, uh, if you're a believer, goes to heaven. If you're not, goes to a place called Hades or hell. Now, we know very little about the nature of this heaven. It's a place of rest. It seems to be a place that focuses on escaping from the pain and suffering of this life. It definitely is focused on being present with the Lord. Uh, you know, so it's a great place, a joyful place to be. But we actually know very little about this. But I want to show you in a minute that this heaven and hell are actually more temporary than you might imagine. So when people say, Dale, do I go to heaven forever? It depends a little bit on what you mean by heaven. If you mean the place that my soul goes to right now when I die, uh, I would say uh, no. That's not your eternal home. It's the what, what, what Alcorn calls in his book kind of the intermediate heaven that your soul lives in until the end of time. Um, but if you mean by heaven your eternal destiny or eternity, then yes, you're with Christ forever, never to be away from him, and uh, that's forever and ever. The next thing that seems to happen in Scripture is an event uh, in which Jesus appears. Jesus comes back and appears in the clouds. And listen to how it's described in, in, in the Scriptures. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, if you want to write it down, beginning in verse 16. It's referred to as the rapture or the removal or the snatching up of the church. And here is why. 1 Corinthians 4, 16 says, for this I want to say to you by, by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of Christ, the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have died or fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Now this is a little confusing, but let me just make it simple for you. Christ, it says, appears in the clouds, and when this happens, it says the first thing that happens is those who have died in Christ or in Jesus, those who have died with faith in Jesus, um, their soul is already in heaven, right? Uh, their body is resurrected. Somehow God miraculously resurrects a spiritual body for these 
for these people. Their body is resurrected. How God someday, should I die and this happen after my death, how God somehow resurrects Dale a body um, is, uh, is, you know, is a mystery. But yet it's promised, and I think a God who can create uh, the universe by speaking it into existence has no trouble pulling this off. Uh, the resurrected body of Jesus is probably the best uh, picture of this because it's an eternal spiritual body, but yet it could be touched. Uh, Jesus could be touched. Uh, they touched the wounds, for example, of his hands. Jesus could be in one place at one time and zap himself into another place. He could go through a, through a, into a room without opening the door. Uh, you know, so, but it, that was the resurrected body of Christ. And, and, and it's referred to as Christ's resurrected body is like the first fruits of the resurrection. So it's, it's, it's the example of how our bodies will be like the resurrected Jesus. So if you want to picture that, uh, that's the best way I can try to describe it. But the idea is that these bodies are resurrected. So if someone's already died and they're with the Lord in heaven... Um, their bodies will be resurrected first and go up to be united with their soul with the Lord in the clouds. And then, in an instant, the passage goes on and says this. It says then, verse 17, we who are alive when Christ comes and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord, therefore, comfort one another with these words. So what he says is, then those of us that might be alive when this happens. So we're followers of Christ, and we're alive. Uh, instantly, we witness this resurrection of those who have died in Christ. Their bodies are resurrected, and then our bodies would be transformed in, in a flash into that eternal body that would go up to be with the Lord. So it's, it's, a, it's a wild and crazy thing to picture, but it's exactly what 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 describes. Now, I think personally when Jesus says that my coming is going to be like a thief in the night, that the day of the Lord will, be, will come like a thief in the night, I think this is what he's referring to. That there's no advance warning. It could happen at any moment. And in fact, from my study of Scripture, there's actually nothing that would have to, to happen before this could happen in the next, just playing with you there, in the next moment. In other words, this could happen today, in my opinion. Uh, you say, well, Dale, what about certain things in Scripture that are supposed to still happen? You know, every tongue and tribe knows about Christ and this and that, various things. And, you know, the reality is a lot of things happen after Christ returns as well. So whether they happen before He returns or after He returns, uh, the reality is... I believe I live, we should live with a, with a sense of eminency, with a sense of anticipation, with the sense that this could happen at any moment. And that certainly seemed to be the spirit of Second Peter. Now, after this happens, what happens? Now, let me kind of walk you through this real fast. And I'll give you some scripture references. Then the, the next thing that happens is there is this beam of judgment where Christians, those who have faith in Christ, are saved by His grace, not works, saved by the grace of God, appear before a special judgment in heaven called the Bema Seat or the Bema Judgment. I gave a sermon on this a few weeks ago in this series, so you can go back and listen to it. 
But basically, this is when God distributes rewards that are given to his followers based on how they live their lives, based on how they were good stewards of what God had entrusted to them, based on how they served Christ in this life, uh, and uh, you know that God gives out rewards. And some of those rewards are used in worship, and other rewards are, are, will apply to eternity. And uh, So go back and listen to the sermon if you want to hear a, an entire message on mostly this. But then this happens. We're not sure exactly when, but that happens. And then with Christ removing his church, I believe what begins is about a seven-year period described as a period of great tribulation. And it's described in a lot of metaphorical and graphic detail in the book of Revelation. And you see it described from chapters 4 to 19. Uh, and, and, and Jesus talks about this in Matthew chapter 24, which I gave you an outline of last week. Remember that? And, you know, so, so if you look at Matthew 24, if you, if you look at the book of Revelation, you, you read about this tremendous time of tremendous tribulation on planet Earth. After this period of time, then Revelation 19 describes Jesus Christ coming to Earth. Matthew 24.30 would be the reference in the teaching of Jesus. And this is a time that Jesus doesn't just come in the clouds, but He comes to the earth. He executes judgment. It's actually described as Him putting to death. Uh, His enemies are slain. Jesus comes with the church as His army, and uh, His enemies are slain. Those who have faith in Christ when this happens are kept alive and saved. They aren't changed. They're kept alive in their physical bodies. And they begin the next thing described in Scripture, which is a thousand-year period where Jesus reigns over His kingdom on planet Earth. So Christ reigns on the Earth. There's perfect peace. This is an incredible time in which um, in which there is there is peace and righteousness on the earth and you know but people are having babies and there's population growth and and uh, it is it is an amazing time in which those who are alive when Jesus comes actually uh, have the privilege of of living in this period of time um, so it's it's an amazing thousand year period the most distinctive thing said about it is in Revelation chapter 20. So if you write write that down, read it this week. And in Revelation 20, it says the thing that makes this so different is Christ reigns on the earth, and it says Satan is bound for a thousand years. He's allowed no influence on planet earth. So it's like Satan is chained or bound up, not allowed to influence events on planet earth for a thousand years. Imagine that. And then at the end of that thousand years, it says that God releases Satan and allows him to again uh, have influence. And there are unbelievers who will follow after him. And there's a great rebellion, a tremendous uh, time of warfare and rebellion. And, uh, and then after that tremendous warfare, bring up my warfare. There it is. The final conflict occurs. And then, and then, uh, and then there's a final judgment referred to uh, in Revelation as the um, in Revelation 20:11 as the great white throne judgment where all unbelievers of all time 
are come into the presence of God. And that's where it actually says that even, even, uh, even death and Hades give up their dead and, uh, and all unbelievers of all time are gathered before, before Christ and are, and are judged. And, uh, and then after that, then we have the event described in 2 Peter chapter 3. Then all things are destroyed. Heaven and earth are destroyed. A new heaven and a new earth are created. Um, and, uh, and it talks about all unbelievers uh, as well as Satan and those who have followed him are cast into the lake of fire forever. So the lake of fire is actually the eternal uh, place of the unbeliever who is lost. So that's why I say that in a, in a way, you know, hell is the temporary place. The lake of fire is the eternal place. Heaven is the temporary place for the believer. The new heaven and the new earth is the eternal dwelling place. Now, is that crystal clear? Everybody got that? Okay, any questions? I wish we could just take the next 30 minutes for questions, all right? If you have questions, get Alcorn's book, okay? And, uh, and I can point you to some more. But what I really want to do is to show you that in this passage, when he says, look, here's what's going to come down. Uh, Jesus is coming like a thief in the night. And when he comes, all of a sudden, with no warning, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, verse 10, in which the heavens pass away and are destroyed. And we would think that, it's kind of like we would think that everything from the rapture of the church to the new heaven and the new earth is, is shrunk down in Second Peter 3, 10, and 11 into two short verses. And the reason that it says that is when you study the phrase, the day of the Lord, uh, or the day of God, it's used in Scripture not just for a moment or a single day in time, but it's, it's used to describe end-time events. So when he says the day of the Lord will come like a thief with no warning, what he's talking about is I believe when Christ appears unexpectedly, boom, and that begins this period of time which includes tribulation and judgment and the second coming of Christ and a thousand year kingdom on earth and then the great white throne judgment and then finally it concludes with heaven and earth being destroyed and a new heaven, new earth being created as your home my home forever and ever. That period of time is the day of the Lord. Got that? Does that help? Now, you say, okay, deal. So, let me pull it together. Fact one, history is on a countdown. And we need to live with that awareness of that. Fact two, heavens and earth will be destroyed, but then remade or resurrected. That's fact number two. So the current heaven, current earth, is not really your eternal destiny. But here's the cool thing. Fact three is God promises believers a new life in a new body with a new home. So just remember those three things. What will your eternity look like? New life, free of sin, free of suffering, free of pain, and a new body, the resurrected, a resurrected body, Think of like, like the body of Jesus in his resurrection, living forever and ever in a new home, which when you read scripture is really more focused on the new heaven, new earth. So what will this be like? What will this be like? Well, the short passage, my favorite one is Revelation 21, 1 to 5. 
Let me just read some highlights. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Revelation 21.1 For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, made ready as a bride for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling or the tabernacle of God is among men. He will dwell among them, and they shall be His people, and He Himself shall be among them, and He shall wipe away every tear from their eyes. No longer be any death. No longer be any mourning. No longer be any crying or pain. For the first things have, again, passed away. And He who sits on the throne says, Behold, I am making all things new. Right, for these words are faithful and true. Revelation 21, 1-5. Alcorn in his book, I believe, does an amazing job searching the Scriptures from Genesis to Revelation to find the hints as to what this eternal destiny for the believer is like. Let me show you a contrast between uh, this glimpse into eternity of how we often speak of heaven thinking that that's our eternity. So what we assume about eternity versus what the Bible actually says about eternity. Now, I've given you this because I knew today, today is one of those messages where I'm, I'm just I'm giving you a lot more information than I like to give. But, but I think it really helps uh, to, to kind of get eternity into focus. So, therefore, I've printed out a chart for you. If you look at your outline... And I'll just kind of hit a few highlights with a few quotes. What's the glimpse of eternity adapted again from Alcorn's book? Well, we assume, first of all, that our eternity is in a spiritual heaven that is a non-earth type place. I think that's the most common belief in our culture. In reality, the Bible says your eternity, that may be true of where your soul goes now, and I think it is, but your eternal home is a new heaven and new earth. Alcorn writes this. He says, the answer to the question, will we live in heaven forever? Depends on what you mean by heaven. Will we be with the Lord forever? Absolutely. Will we always be with him in exactly the same place that heaven is now? That is where our soul goes now. He says, no. In this intermediate heaven, we'll be in the presence of Christ It'll be joyful, and we'll be, but we'll be looking forward toward our future bodily resurrection and our permanent relocation to the new earth. Therefore, what flows out of this is Alcorn says, whereas most people think this, that this eternal home will be unfamiliar, he says it'll be actually probably pretty familiar. Some people think it is otherworldly. Notice on the outline, he says, no, but it's, it's earthly, but perfected. I like this quote. He says, the new earth will not be a non-earth, but a real earth. The earth spoken of in Scripture is the earth we know. as dirt, water, trees, flowers, animals, people, a variety of natural wonders. And earth without these would not be called earth. In other words, the language of Scripture is very much that, you know, just as our bodies uh, are destroyed but yet resurrected new, uh, the earth will be destroyed. In fact, the NIV uses the phrase laid bare. 
So the idea is more that the current earth created by God for us uh, and for him to enjoy forever, that current earth, in some sense, in some sense, God utterly destroys it with heat uh, and it's utterly destroyed or laid bare, but then God recreates it. Best I can do is imagine the Garden of Eden on steroids, okay? Imagine the most incredible place Uh, The earth as God would design it to be, free of sin, free of the effects of sin, uh, and perfected. I love that description. So therefore, our eternity is not disembodied, but in resurrected bodies. Luke 24, 39, Jesus says, See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. So it's, it's an eternal body, but yet Jesus is described as being touchable. and very It is physical and touchable, but yet also an eternal body. Here's another contrast. We usually think of heaven as leaving all of our favorite things behind. I think that's why most of us, to be honest, you think, hey, are you kind of eager to go to heaven? I'd probably say, mm, yeah, I kind of want to go there in the end, but I don't want to rush. And, you know, because part of it is we, always, we picture all these favorite things about life now that we enjoy. And, and what, what Alcorn points out is that our eternal home will be retaining the very best of the current life, but yet finding way better best even better best ahead Um, here's a description love this quote every joy on earth including the joy of reunion is an inkling a whisper of a greater joy the grand canyon the alps the amazon rainforest the serengeti plain these are rough sketches of the new earth one day we may well say The best parts of the old world were just a sneak preview of this one. Like a little foretaste. Like licking the spoon from mama's beef stew an hour before a great supper. Just like the Garden of Eden, the new earth will be a place of sensory delight, breathtaking beauty, satisfying relationships, and personal joy, all especially in the presence of God dwelling with us. Here's another contrast. We think that our eternal home is strange and unknown, but he says this would say it's probably familiar, but like anything we've ever known. I love that. Rene Pache writes this, The emphasis of the present heaven is clearly on rest and cessation from earth's battles and the comforts from earth's sufferings. But the future heaven, the new heaven and new earth, is centered more on activity and expansion, serving Christ, reigning with Christ. The scope is much larger. The great city with its 12 gates. People are coming and going. Nations are there to be ruled. In other words, the emphasis of the present heaven is on the absence of earth's negatives. This is quotable. Those of you who want to tweet something from the morning. Here you go. I'll give it to you. The emphasis of the present heaven is on the absence of earth's negatives, while the future eternal heaven and earth is on the presence of earth's positives. 
and the perfection of earth's positives, magnified many times through the power and glory of resurrected bodies on a resurrected earth, free at last from sin and shame and all that would hinder joy and achievement. We think heaven is a boring place with nothing to do but float on clouds and sing songs. But the reality is our eternal destiny is a place in which we have a God to worship who is with us. And He is the focal point of our worship. We have Christ to worship and to serve, a universe to rule, purposeful work to do and accomplish, friends to enjoy. Wow. I'll leave the rest of the chart for you to consider on your own. But it's a place of eternal learning and discovery, fascination, the fulfillment of desire. And I love the the ending point of the outline. He says this, we think heaven is just the absence of anything terrible. But the real eternal destiny is the presence of the wonderful. It's not just the absence of the terrible. It's the presence of the incredible, even yet to be imagined. Beauty and joy of life with Christ, with one another, forever and ever. Alcorn concludes the book by saying this. What we have assumed about heaven has reduced it to a place we look forward to only as an alternative to the intolerable existence here on the earth. Only the elderly, disabled, and suffering and the persecuted might desire the heaven we imagine. But the Bible portrays life in God's presence in a resurrected body, in a resurrected universe, as so exciting and compelling that even the youngest and healthiest of us should daydream about it. And I have to admit, When I read that, I thought, that's me. So often, I have failed to really enter into excitement over what God has provided through Jesus Christ as an eternal gift, eternal home, resurrected, perfected body. God knows I need that. Amen? Yeah, yeah, you can say amen to that. And so do you, okay? So we need that. Free of pain, free of suffering, with one another, with Christ forever. Not just in the clouds, but here in a new earth. So how do we respond to this? Uh, Let me just leave you with very short statements. Number one, this passage says, be ready. It says, Christ will come like a thief in the night. It says, be ready. You can meet Christ at any moment. No two-minute warning needed, as far as I can see it, before this day of the Lord would begin. Number two, be light. Every day may be your last chance to share Christ with someone who needs Him desperately. And this thing just really gets my juices kind of juiced up with the, the, the reality that, that we need to be more aggressively, lovingly reaching out to a lost world. Whether it's right here in Encinitas or in the distant reaches of Africa. We have got to take that more seriously. You have no promise that your neighbor, your friend, your family will have tomorrow. You only have today. Number three, be on guard. He ends the passage by warning us to get our truth from the Scriptures. Make sure you listen to the Word of God. Don't buy into the thinking of the culture which says, ah, this is never going to happen. The reality is the Scriptures may be hard to understand at times, but they are your wisdom for life. Last of all, 
he ends by saying this, You therefore, verse 17, Beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard, verse 18, but grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He ends by saying, look, some of this is hard to understand. I love the fact that Peter says, hey, some of this is hard to understand. He acknowledges that. But he says, don't miss the big idea. Because whether you understand everything on the chart that I gave you in the black box, understand that the beginning point is Jesus will show up with no warning and everything changes from that moment on in human history. And very soon after that, from God's perspective, everything will be destroyed and it will all be made new. And the eternal destiny, if you know Jesus Christ, is the new heaven and the new earth. The eternal destiny, if you do not, is the lake of fire. And he says, in light of that, let us live with godliness. Let us pursue holiness. Let us pursue sharing the great news of the gospel. Let us live now with one eye on the eternal destiny that people hate, that people face. That's wisdom. That's wisdom. Pray with me. Father God, thank you for... um, this incredible glimpse into uh, eternity. I thank you for the richness of your word. I thank you for um, the fact that you promise us that you share a dislike for the pain of this planet. You share a dislike for the effects of sin and shame and and pain and suffering that uh, goes with life on planet earth now. Father, we thank you for the joys of this life. We have you to thank for those as well, but we thank you that those joys will be magnified and perfected in eternity. And we'll have you among us, and we'll have Christ as the center of our worship face to face. So, Father, I pray that we as your church, that we would be a church that is passionate to not live for the things of this short little time on planet Earth, knowing that it's all going to get burned up. But let us live for that which will be eternal and last forever and ever. And let us lay up treasure in heaven, as Christ says. And Father, if there is anyone this morning that needs you, we pray that they would take a moment to just simply say, Lord Jesus, I choose you today. I don't want to wait till tomorrow. I place my faith in you today with Pastor Dale. And I want you to be my Lord, my Savior. I choose you today. I'm not trusting in my goodness because I know I still sin. I choose to trust in what Christ did on the cross as my resurrected Lord and Savior. We love you. And we worship you now in Christ's name. Amen. Stand with me and sing one final song. I think this is a great song of celebration. Focus on the words as you sing it.